Hey, everybody, and welcome to the 20 Minute Fitness Podcast. I'm your host, Martin Kessler, and you may not have heard about me before, so allow me to introduce myself a little. I'm co founder of Shape, the maker of ShapeScope that you may have heard about, you know, the 3D body scanner and fitness tracker. And I'm also a sports nutritionist with a passion for Tough Mudder and Spartan Obstacle Course races. And I'm also a lot into things, you know, all around fitness technology and science. So including things like wearables, um, fitness trackers, sports watches to, you know, body trackers, um, all the way to, you know, body hacking and so forth. And which is really why I'm here, because as you may have heard already, we are launching a new mini series called Why I Built This on 20 Minute Fitness. And on every episode, we intend to bring to you the founder, the innovator behind an exciting startup that is revolutionizing the healthcare fitness or personal health industry was fascinating new technology in one way or another. So today on our very first episode, we've got Tim Pack, the CEO and co-founder of Call9. And it's really interesting because he started out as, as an MD from Boston, whom even his own family thought, you know, he was crazy when he, you know, left his position as a chief resident at Harvard Medical School and then suddenly moved to Silicon Valley, you know, to build this new platform that was attempting to reinvent the 911 system. But you know what? He actually succeeded. And today, Tim and his team have created a platform that has already delivered life-changing care to over 3,500 patients. And so stay with us today to hear about Tim's journey, how he got started, what challenges he had to go through to, you know, create Call 9 and make a massive impact on the emergency care system in the US. Really interesting story. So, but before we jump right into it, I would like to thank our sponsor, ShapeScale, a 3D body scanner and fitness tracker. You can step on it and digitize your body composition and photorealistic 3D. Now available on pre-order on ShapeScale.com. Let's get right into it. Yeah, so so I'm here with um, Tim Peck. He's the CEO and founder of Call9. And um, yeah, Tim, why don't you just um, introduce yourself a little bit to our audience and tell us a bit about yourself. Uh, sure. So uh, Tim Peck, I'm an emergency physician by training, New Yorker, went to NYU for med school, up to, to Harvard for residency and stayed on as faculty there and then left in early 2015, uh, put academia behind me and moved uh-huh. out to Silicon Valley um, wow. and uh, joined, joined Y Combinator summer 2015. Uh, there, I get, went in there with the idea to reinvent 911. That was the big pitch. We came up with a, a company and a concept called Call9. Uh-huh. Uh, what we do is we deliver emergency medicine, emergency care to patients in nursing homes uh, to give them uh, the care they need in the moment of their emergency and avoid unnecessary trips to the hospital. So how does it work in practice? Walk me through it. Like, I'm in a nursing home. How, where and how do you guys come into play? Yeah, certainly. So, you know, first, you know, start starting with the, what the problem we're trying to solve here is, is, uh, it's about 1.3 million transfers to the emergency department every year. Wow. And that, that's just from nursing homes. Uh, if you look at it from the standpoint of where I was standing in the emergency department, uh, 19% of the ambulances that come to the emergency department originate from nursing homes and rehabs. So, you know, one out of five of these patients that I was getting in the ED are super sick. Mm-hmm. Coming in, uh, 50% of them or so are uh, have dementia. Most of them become delirious and confused, and they don't have their advocates, and I don't have time to call their families in the emergency department. We can't really talk to the patients, so order every test under the rainbow, put people in hallways, they get bed sores, infections. It's a pretty horrible experience for people who are... Mm. 
over the age of 65. And then almost uh, inevitably, they get admitted to the hospital as well. And right. this whole cycle costs about fifteen dollars to $20,000 every time it happens. Um, and two thirds of those trips to the hospital have been deemed avoidable by the government did a big study on it, if only there could be a system to avoid them. Uh, so what we do is we put a paramedic in every nursing home that we're in. And that paramedic actually is there 24 seven staffing the nursing home. Uh, and that paramedic it goes to the bedside whenever there's any type of acute need for the patient, taps an app on an iPhone and connects to our emergency physicians who are also home 24-7 by uh, a telemedicine technology that we created. So, so you have a paramedic for how many people in a nursing home exactly, like an average yeah, so it's usually an average of the average nursing home in the US is about 115 beds, but we go into larger nursing homes. So our average nursing home is about 250 beds. Uh, we have nursing homes as large as 600 that we're in. Uh -huh. And how often do you get like an emergency in a case like that? Yeah, so we see about two or three patients a day wow. um, for critical care. And then, as you might imagine, there's a whole bunch of patients on our census because, you know, after they have their emergency and we treat them and stabilize them, uh, we continue to treat them for kind of days afterwards. They would have otherwise been in the hospital and needed more advanced care. So our on-site paramedics will, will continue to do telemedicine to tap back into the CER positions and manage them for days afterwards. So even though we only see two or three a day, you know, the, the census is, gets to be 10, 15, 20 patients. Ron, and how would it normally look like if there wasn't a paramedic? They would just call 911 and just so that we understand the difference. Yeah, absolutely. I, I didn't really know much about nursing homes when I started this whole process, uh -huh. um, believe it or not. I, you know, I never once stepped foot into a nursing home. Um, in med school, I never went to a nursing home. It's not part of our curriculum in residency, as doc, etc. So what I did is I lived in a nursing home for three months in a nursing home in Long Island, you know, getting to do product and user research, trying to make something people want. And, and that was when you when you were just starting call nine at that time? or Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's and then, and then started seeing patients and learning the economics of nursing homes and the business models, etc. And looking at all these transfers and saying, why are they happening? And it really came down to three reasons. The first is that nursing to patient ratio in nursing homes is one nurse to every 36 patients across the country. Uh -huh. So wow. if one patient gets sick, then you have 35 other patients for that nurse to take care of. And that's, um, you know, they're trained, they're trained well, but they're trained in chronic care, not emergency mm -hmm. care. So they kind of call 911 to get that patient out of the nursing home, thinking they're doing the right thing for the patient. But I also describe to you what happens to these patients when they're in the emergency department. It's, it's not a good situation for them. Um, and that's not any better in the hospital either. Um, again, about 40% of them leave uh, the hospital worse than when they came in. Wow. And why is that? Is uh, something called post-hospital syndrome. The hospital is a horrible place for older people to be. It's exhausting, the lights and the beeps mm. and, and how it is can really make people delirious and uh, people get infections and medical errors and head sores and things wow. of that nature. So, 40%, that's crazy. It's it crazy is. high. Yeah, New York Times just did a kind of an expose around it. So um, pretty big, pretty big issue here, you know, and a bad patient experience to try to, to get to. The second thing in this nursing homes that I saw that led to these transfers is the uh, diagnostics are very sparse. So lab tests, EKGs, these things take 24, 48 hours to come back. That works for chronic care, but mm -hmm. not for not for acute emergency care. And then thirdly, physicians are not present in nursing homes. Uh, when I was in that nursing home living there, walking around nights, holidays, weekends, I never once saw another doctor. Wow. And they don't even have like somebody on call that could come in a case of emergency? 
Yeah, so they could, but they're usually uh, docs who also work in the hospital or Mm. at home. Uh, There are nursing homes that have kind of staffed physicians there or NPs, but those are, you know, there's fewer of those uh, in the U.S. and usually, uh, you know, higher end nursing homes. So most patients, long-term care patients are uh, required to be seen once a month. And then short-term patients who are, um, you know, mom who fell and broke her hip and she needs three weeks to to get better before she goes home. That's called a short-term patient. They're seen about twice a week. So that's the system. Oh, so the system is pretty bad. So there's almost no real, you know, physician on on site, nobody there to help in a case of emergency. 911 has to be called. Then the experience (laughs) itself is pretty bad, having to go through emergency services and 40% of coming back in a worse state. So how does it then differ with call nine? So you have a paramedic on site and how do they use call nine? How does the process look then? Yeah, so we're there immediately with the patient for one. And normally these patients are waiting, you know, hours to see a physician. Even when 911 is called, the average time for a patient to see a physician after calling 911, if you pick up the phone right now and call 911, mm-hmm. it takes about 64 minutes with the waiting times for you to see a physician. Wow. You're pulseless. It's about 36 minutes on average. You know, your heart is stopped. It's 36 minutes. The numbers are, are great when you start to really look at mm. it. So uh, the, for one, we're there immediately and able to treat them immediately and be with these patients. Uh, secondly, we have our paramedics there who know emergencies, unlike most of the nurses at the nursing home who are good at credit care. And they have a suite of diagnostics with them, uh, mm-hmm. kinda with them that is a EKG that they take and kind of integrates into the technology and goes to the screen of the physician telemetry and vital signs that kind of beep and go onto the screen of the physician in real time. We have bedside labs that results within two minutes, basic labs, which is a cool technology by Abbott um, that we integrate with. We have real-time ultrasound that we perform, uh, put in IVs, IV fluids, IV antibiotics, um, breathing treatments. And, you know, in this way, we're able to do pretty high-level care and able to treat those patients. Just to provide some context for audience here, like what sort of you know, emergency cases do you most typically see in a nursing home? Yeah. So for those that we avoid going to the hospital, there's kind of two groups here. About 20% of the patients we see go to the hospital. And those are, you know, heart attacks and strokes that mm. need to get there. And then 80% we we maintain in the in the comfort of their home, in the nursing home. And that is uh, the top diagnoses are pneumonia, chronic heart failure, uh, COPD, which is emphysema, uh, urinary tract infections, skin infections, and then dehydration. Those are the which can happen in the elderly pretty easily. So those mm-hmm. are the top six diagnoses. Those are the things that we're treating. And which of these can you treat on site with your lab and the equipment that you have? All of those we can treat. Wow. Those, so those are the diagnoses that we are most frequently treating and keeping in, in place. So yeah. what's, what's been the result? Like, obviously, I'm sure you guys have been keeping track of it and comparing how, yep. you know, the traditional experience would have been like on average compared to the call nine experience. How, did, how mm-hmm. does that look? Yeah, so that is exactly what we do. We have integrations, you know, technology company that has integrations into the electronic medical record systems of the nursing home. And that allows us to do a tremendous amount of data uh, tracking and analysis and, and put some machine learning algorithms on the, onto that data. So. What we see is that we treated um, over the last 20,000 visits that we've had, we uh, show that we've been able to save about $8 million per 200-bed nursing home per year. So on the finance side, that's how this works. We save the government who pays for most of these patients Mm -hmm. and the insurance companies. 
a ton of money while also tracking the health outcomes and showing that we're having better quality measures, which they're called. So not only avoiding the hospitals, but having low levels of infection and, and good follow-up right. care, uh, things of that nature. And so uh, the way that Call9 works around business models, because we have those numbers and have that data, um, and because we share that with the insurance companies, uh, we enter into arrangements where uh, we save the money and then we get a share of those dollars. That's called shared savings. Um, and this is called value-based care, meaning trying to do things for the patient that are better mm-hmm. for them and then being rewarded for it, unlike what a lot of medicine is, especially emergency medicine, which is just do as many tests as possible and get charged for them and get paid. And that's kind of the old way of medicine. Yeah. And now we're doing the new way, which is bring value and get paid that's for great. it. great. It's a win-win situation. And uh, how does it look like on the patient side? Like, have you been keeping track of like, obviously, you know, some cases end up being fatal, right? Mm-hmm. And how does it look like when you have on-site treatment and you don't have to go like through this traumatic experience of having to go through emergency services? Some cases are fatal. People, you know, have strokes. People have heart attacks. There are things that um, that lead to the end of life. Um, one of the most beautiful things that we do and situations that we can create are by helping people at the end of life have a dignified life and be there in the comfort of their own bed in a place that they know with their families there. And we do a lot of end of life care because of that. Um, otherwise, known as palliative care, um, mm-hmm. help with people's symptoms there. That generates a lot. A lot of emotions, a lot of mission for our employees to come work here at Call 9 and be part of that experience. And it's kind of something we talk about every Monday team meeting. We'll talk about a patient who's passed and honor them, Mm. um, things of that nature. You know, it's the population that we're working with and the people that we're working with. Uh, It's just an inevitability of life, but we try to make that as beautiful as possible. Yeah, so I want to take a bit of a, you know, step back and want you to go back and think about the moment when you guys started with Call 9. Like, Mm -hmm. how did that end up happening? I I see you have actually specialized doing your doctor of medicine at NYU in emergency medicine. Like, did that influence you into getting into um, what you have been building today? Yeah, so um, I went to med school at NYU, went up to Harvard for residency. And that experience up there in Boston, there's a few experiences that really led me to take the plunge and leave my job there. I think one that... I like to talk about is a patient who um, was uh, end of life care. You know, her, the, her she was a palliative care patient, and EMTs who are in a nursing home, you know, who are called by nine one one to go pick up this patient, said, "Hey, I have a patient." They called me at the emergency department, and said, "Hey, I have a patient here who is what's called do not hospitalize, meaning like please don't send to the hospital because they're not going to do anything good for the patient. Need to keep this patient comfortable, but the nursing home wants to send them to the hospital anyway." I said, mm. "Please don't do this. Please don't do." this it's not right for the patient uh, we're not going to be able to do anything for them here you're just going to cause harm to this patient they did send the patient and bring the patient to the emergency department that patient wound up sitting around for 12 hours until she finally went back to the nursing home but we didn't wow. um, do anything for her and she wound up getting a big bed sore on her leg from just lying around there why do you think they insisted on it so that's what I didn't understand. I just didn't understand what was going on in nursing homes and why this was happening. Um, and that's what led me to, again, go live in a nursing home and try to figure this out. And it really came down to this patient was having some difficulty with breathing because she had bad symptoms of emphysema. And they felt like they didn't have the time to take care of it. Mm. The, they had 35 other patients to take care of. And that nurse didn't have the time to give the care that they 
they they needed. And that was that was a very sad reality of the nursing home couldn't give the care. We in the emergency department couldn't get a care. There needs to be a different system. There needs to be a different way to kind of bridge the gap um, between the emergency department and the nursing home. So that's kind of led to this idea of what if we could bring the emergency department to the patient instead of having them come to us. Right. And kind of flip that on its head. And how did you even go about that? Like, I mean, I can imagine you've been getting probably several dozens, maybe hundreds of cases like that. And it must have been extremely frustrating to you. Mm-hmm. How did you even, did you first actually end up going to a nursing home and, and staying there for three months before you even had the idea of like what you could do? Or how did you get to that moment? Yeah, I really started with, so that was one. So it started with um, trying to figure out how can I be with patients at the moment of emergency where they are, whether they were in a nursing home or not. Mm-hmm. And looking at that problem in telemedicine seemed to be a logical approach, right? Video, seeing if we can use video to get to patients. And uh, the name Call 9, where it comes from, is, uh, you know, first we were thinking, what if we can go direct to consumer kind of thing, where uh, <laughs> someone would call nine, you know, call us instead of call 911. And, you know, it's such a ubiquitous term to say, call 911. So we're thinking, what if yeah. we could be call 9? It's a bit shorter than 911. And <laughs> they'll yell that. Oh, back. okay. No, uh, I don't know why I didn't see that earlier. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that's kind of where uh, that came from. But, um, you know, it was it wasn't logical to go direct and consumer. Did you, did you have a try in implementing that? Or like, how did you notice it wasn't the right approach? Mm, that's a good question. Just simply uh, going through the exercise of making, uh, just using FaceTime and putting it into mm-hmm. uh, people's hands in the field and saying, what would you do if you had an emergency? You know, doing the most light product development uh, process as possible and realizing very quickly that that wouldn't work out for us. So we kind right. of pivoted to looking at, okay, what businesses might be able to use something like this? Nursing homes being at the top of the list just made so much sense for this population, the emergency and the in the nursing home who were being transferred. And again, it's 20 per, 20% of the transfers are coming from this one place. And that was in 2015 or when was that? Yeah, that was 2015 when we when we started this. And yeah. at that point in time, did you already know like, okay, this is what I want to do? At that moment, were you still in Harvard yeah. Medical School or how does that look? No, I was uh, I was already a practicing physician at that time. Okay. Um, and out of medical school, out of residency. But um, it really... It took hold and when knew that this was going to work, this was something that needed to happen and mm-hmm. came to this realization um, after treating our first patient. And I'll tell you about Mr. D, our first patient. But yeah, I would love to hear that. If I'm not here and if call nine doesn't exist, this patient population, these patients are going to go through this horrible experience and a lot mm-hmm. of them are going to die, right? A lot of them are going to not get the care that they need. But my job in the hospital, well, when I left that, someone else took it, right? Someone yeah. else took my job and, and took that job and did the work. But these patients are going to have nothing. It's a zero mm-hmm. to one. Um, Mr. D was our first patient. We, we were supposed to get started on July 16th, 2015, but instead the medical director of this nursing home that we were in called us in and said, Hey, can you come a day early and start? And just, I just want to make sure the internet works and you know, all the right eyes are dotted and T's are crossed. So it's sure. Yeah. We'll come in and see a patient uh, the day before we go live and they had to see Mr. D. And Mr. D's complaint, um, his chief complaint is what was wrong was that he was constipated. <laughs> so he <laughs> backed up and we we're like, okay, we'll see him. You know, so not a patient that we would typically see, maybe, you know, we're right. seeing patients who have high fevers and mm. 
belly pain and whatever. Uh, so, but it was a good patient to, to practice on. Uh, well, we got there and he, he did have abdominal pain, belly pain. Um, and I could see him on the screen and he looked a bit short of breath. He was a pretty gruff guy. You know, Mr. D, you know, are you short of breath? Nah, no, I'm fine. Don't, don't worry about it. Um, okay. And so we put him on the telemetry machine, which is the vital sign monitor. Mm-hmm. Um, and able to see that his respiratory rate was a bit high, actually. Um, and I could see because I'm in- integrated with his records that, um, uh, you know, the data that is right there in front of me that he's a brutal diabetic. And so diabetes, shortness of breath and vague abdominal discomfort uh, to an emergency physician means heart attack until proven otherwise. That's actually how a diabetic uh, presents with a heart attack, unlike the movies when you're grabbing your chest. So we did an EKG. And because we have his past medical records, I can see his old EKG. And in fact, he was having a heart attack in comparison to his LBKG. Oh my God. He ordered aspirin, you know, administered aspirin, uh, put, could see that his oxygen was falling. So we put, um, we put oxygen on his nose and then I got that back up, put in an IV and, you know, in the meanwhile, called our ambulance company that we have a third party contract with uh-huh. that comes and gets a patient, you know, outside the 911 system that works a lot faster, uh, kind of a backbone straight to them. Uh-huh. And then they sent the ambulance. I called the family because we call the family on every single patient that we see. Mm-hmm. Um, and told them what was going on. Mr. D was going to the hospital. His son, Charlie, um, which turns out was Charlie's birthday, actually. Oh was, my God. Uh, yeah. It's getting worse. Yeah. Met Mr. D at the hospital. Um, and by the time he got to the hospital, his, um, lungs were starting to fill up with fluid and, uh, they put him on a breathing mask that, that helped there. And he, um, actually turned him around and, and put heparin, the blood thinning mm-hmm. medicine through the IV that we had placed. And by the time he got upstairs, he was admitted to the hospital and he actually left three days later, wow. um, with only 5% less of, less of his heart function, uh, which is you lose 5% when you run a marathon. Um, it's, yeah. it's not much at all. So that's uh, crazy. And, and that was literally a first patient, first patient. What the, what they were going to do was give him a, an enema, a treatment for his constipation uh-huh. and, uh, ha- and have him go back to bed. Mr. D wow. wouldn't, would not have woken up that morning. And, and you, you wouldn't have even showed up normally on that day. You, you were scheduled to show up the next day, right? That, that's right. So it was kind of lightning in a bottle. That's crazy. Knew, knew that this was, we were onto something here, knew that we could save lives. Uh, you know, we proved that we could save lives on the very first day. And again, it was this realization that if I'm not here doing this, if we as a team aren't going to make this thing, there are people mm. out there that are going to die. So how did actually your family and friends react to all of this? You know, like, it seems like you made like this change in your life for better or worse. At the time, it was, I guess there was a lot of uncertainty, right? I mean, my parents and my family, I was, um, I was, a, I guess at the time about a 33, 32 year old uh-huh. doctor, right? Um, I had a career and a salary and a life and had a position at Harvard, a faculty position. Yes. And I'm sure it took quite a, quite some time to get there, right? It took a lot of time. Like, you know, you, you, doctors, we, we give our twenties over to medicine. Mm-hmm. A lot of studying, a lot of work, a lot of, you know, 36 hour shifts. Uh, I put a lot of effort into it. So my family thought it was pretty crazy to, t- <laughs> <laughs> to give that up. And when I told them, oh, and you know, in White Combinator, you have to give up your job. Mm-hmm. Um, right. You should, they got to require you to not be working on anything else. Yeah, so, so that came on top of it, right? I mean, like, yeah, you, you left your job and then you told your family and friends, hey, I'm moving to Silicon Valley for that thing <laughs> called White Combinator. Like, yeah. And they're like, what's White Combinator? Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, they uh, they didn't quite get it. Um, and then after that first uh, patient, it just became completely clear, right? You had something tangible that they can understand. The vision uh-huh. became the vision became reality, right? Right in, uh, with the snap of the finger. So that was in 2015, and obviously a lot must have happened since then. Like, mm-hmm. can you just walk us a little bit through where you are today, and how does that compare, and what have you learned from that time, actually? So where we are today, just in the numbers, um, we cover about 4,000 beds um, every day mm-hmm. in terms wow. of patients that we monitor. A typical hospital is about 200 beds to give you the scale of what mm-hmm. we're doing right now. This is all in New York, in lower New York. We actually just opened our second city, which is Syracuse, New York, uh, which is a completely different market, mm-hmm. starting the scaling process of going from kind of city to city. Um, we have uh, about 180 employees right now, uh, physicians group and a paramedic group, both of about 100 people, which is pretty exciting. We have contracts with 10 major insurance companies. We've raised, you know, tens of millions of dollars to to make this happen from great VCs. Uh, And I think most importantly is we've treated tens of thousands of patients. And soon I can probably say hundreds of thousands of patients. Uh, We're almost there. That's incredible. Uh, it's a pretty exciting moment, and we're getting ready to really scale at this point and um, show the world what we can do uh, now that we've taken time to make the product sound and our safety is and quality is as high as it possibly can be. But the other big thing here is that we um, have been working and, and lending assistance that helps us treat the poor, helps us treat Medicaid and Medicare patients. Um, right now, we have to exist mostly on contracts with in private insurance companies um, mm-hmm. because Medicare doesn't recognize it doesn't recognize the service. There's there's no payment model for it. Not that they don't want to. It saves them a bunch of money. It's good for their patients. It's just when they came up with the rules of Medicare, they weren't thinking of call nine and what we can do. Right. Right? And how does that compare right now like with most of your demographic? Yeah, so 60% of patients in nursing homes are covered by Medicare. Oh, yeah, that's cool. But 40%, I mean... Yeah, still 40% uh, by what's called Medicare Advantage, which is private insurance. So about 60% of the patients are there who, who are in need. And that's more in rural areas, you know, poorer cities yeah, or for sure. cities with a large population. So there's a, a lot of patients to still serve. So in order to do that, got to get law changed. We brought our data, this kind of impressive data set over to Congress. Um, and uh, the House of Representatives has introduced a bill, H.R. 6502, called the Rush Act which is uh-huh. Reducing Unnecessary Senior Hospitalizations Act. Uh, it was just introduced in July of 2018, and it looks like it'll be voted on uh, very soon, um, maybe even this year, if not early next year. And it's really, um, it's been introduced by Republicans and Democrats working together. It's a it's bipartisan. That's exactly. Great. It's a bipartisan support of a nonpartisan issue. So. so can you tell the layman, I mean, what's currently really blocking it then, like in terms of the regulation? like. Yeah, so you have to create. So what we're trying to do is create a value-based arrangement, right? We had talked mm-hmm. about this yeah, in the yeah, beginning. Yeah, mm-hmm. So basically, at the end of the day, when there's money left over because you're spending so much less, Medicare keeps fifty percent, and then mm-hmm. the nursing home and the physician group, i.e., call nine, um, and other physician groups that'll do this, uh, will split the other fifty percent. Mm-hmm. So. 
that's how it puts that payment program in place. It authorizes the program to get that payment and uh, makes it a full government program. So that'll be super exciting. And once that happens, um, you know, the whole whole 15,600 nursing homes in the U.S. will be exposed to Call 9's model, whether Call 9 itself is doing it in our physician group or um, other physician groups and hospitals that we're working with will do it and uh, we'll just help them with our technology. That's amazing. So between then when you had your first patient and now, what was like one of the major challenges that you guys have faced, like where you were like gasping, like what the hell is going on? Because I'm sure you must have had a moment like that in time. Yeah, oh, many moments. <laughs> I think, um, you know, trying to make the transition from startup to company where the transition of Tim, the, the product owner, the person who's also doing, uh, the physician visits, who's sometimes doing even the paramedic role because we didn't have someone to do it one day and, um, you know, to operations, etc. to Tim, the, the CEO. The big transition there was I had to convince other physicians to leave their jobs and join me <laughs> and join me in this idea. Well, you kind of set the best example, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I, there was a time when we were trying to scale and we were adding on new nursing homes and, you know, we ha hadn't really gotten any tr much traction mm -hmm. yet. And so the schedule was thin, meaning there were not a lot of physicians covering it. And so I was working a lot of physician hours while oh and seeing patients while also trying to fundraise and things of that nature. So I think that was probably the hardest time. I was kind of working 24 hours a day, but we got through that, you know, because the traction kept, uh, kept coming through. So that was about summer of 2016 when that transition started to, to change. Great. So where do you see Call9 going over the next two or three years? Yeah. So... We'll expand our own service, you know, meaning Call 9, continuing to see patients in more nursing homes in more cities. Uh, we'll next year be in our next state after New York, maybe by the end of the year, the third state as well. And then, you know, like I said, we're about 4,000 beds right now. I'd like mm -hmm. to get to uh, my image is that we'll be in a million beds and there are a million beds out there. <laughs> But um, what really it is, is that once this Rush Act passes, Call 9 will be able to help a lot of other people see patients and help patients and save lives that otherwise wouldn't be saved. So uh, we'll be able to, to, you know, help sell our technology, we'll consult for people and then show them how to do it. We're already working with uh, certain medical centers to, to be able to figure out what that looks like. So that's the next stage of Call 9. Oh, still a lot ahead of you, huh? Yeah, there's a lot to build still. It's amazing. You would think at this point when you're starting, you're like, well, yeah. four years later, you'll <laughs> build everything. But that, that is not the case. There's always every day you're like, oh, man, we got to build that now. So yeah, every day you're building. So I'm kind of curious, like, where do you think, what is the future of the nursing home? Like, Mm. 10, 20 years down the road. I mean, there's a lot of technological change, obviously, in, in healthcare in general. But how do you think that's actually affecting um, nursing homes, but also aging in general? Yeah, it's a great, great question. I think it's more what's the future of the hospital uh -huh. you need to think of. And that the hospital, the idea of walls around an emergency department and walls around a hospital is very artificial. Mm -hmm. There's stuff going on in a hospital. There's services being provided, services being rendered, things happening to patients. But the idea that it has to happen in this one centralized building will start to melt more and more as we have more telecommunications technologies mm -hmm. like telemedicine, as we have more remote monitoring, you 
know, as the essentially Internet of Things becomes stronger and as we start using data to be able to predict who is having emergencies before they do, having illnesses before they actually have them and start doing more preventative. Do you actually think we're going to have less hospital? So that's what I'm saying. Yeah, I think there's less hospitals um, and the hospital becomes much smaller or much less of them. Uh, and they'll be reserved for just the very you know certain things that can't happen even in the home. You, know, you can see a day when we're treating 80% of the things that we do in the hospital today in the home. And that's already started. You know, There's a lot of telemedicine being mm-hmm. used in home care, and sensors. Um, and that's essentially what we're doing, too. We're just doing it in nursing home. Do you think we can also scale emergency? emergency care to average people you know like i mean i could have a heart attack any moment right now right but for me there would be no alternative than 911 at this point yeah that's tough i think um it gets back to in the future you'll be wearing a lot more sensors than you are Mm -hmm. you already have your phone in your pocket which works as a sensor you know you might be wearing your watch which um, works as a sensor Uh, but i think uh, you'll have a lot more biometrics being fed into uh, monitoring programs and so you know some things happen acutely on a dime and things change but most things have warning signs and most things are like we talked about before you know energy behind a dam until it breaks so you just gotta you just gotta get to people before the dam breaks on that note what do you actually think about apple's new integration with like becoming an EKG that is like FDA approved? Like, is that something that you guys imagine also integrating in, in, in your service? Or how do you see that? Yeah, I think uh, that service, what's cool about that is it's for the consumer. It's for people walking mm-hmm. out there. It's exactly what we're talking about. Step one yep. of, of that. That technology already exists. It's not special to Apple. What's special about Apple is that they've been able to, as always, you know, give it to the <laughs> consumer and be able to get mass mass scale out of it almost immediately, which is amazing. And that's where from that comes huge data sets mm-hmm. that you can then make predictive predictions on what will happen to any one individual because you have large data sets to look at. I, I love that first step. Yeah. It's a it's a small step. It's a small step, but it's a big breakthrough toward a, a much better future. All right. So I just want to conclude our interview was a quick fire round so basically i'm going to ask you a few small questions and i don't really want you to spend much time thinking about them just give me a short answer like between 30 seconds and a minute or so and yeah why don't we shoot ahead was like the most easy one what did you have for breakfast <laughs> what did i <laughs> i'm trying to think i think i just had a, a starbucks coffee and didn't get to breakfast until lunch today and i had some sushi uh-huh, okay and uh, do you have any health and fitness apps currently installed on your phone uh, I do have Strava. Um, I love Strava, um, which is you know social media for running uh-huh. and biking. So one habit that has dramatically improved your life for the better. I learned this from that my say my girlfriend. She's an incredibly happy person, and she looks at life so happily. And <laughs> um, and you you take it for granted and wonder why, but she works at being happy. She's very purposeful at it. And mm-hmm. She does the right things for her, and it's just a mindset kind of mm-hmm. thing to say. Okay, today I'm going to be happy. I'm going to make the right choices. I have tried to emulate her, um, and I'm half as good as she is. But it has changed my life to just wake up every day and say I'm going to make the right choices today. And just having that consciousness on, mm-hmm. around that has been an extremely great habit to have in the morning when waking up. Yeah, it's, it's incredible. There have been actually studies that have affirmed that, you know, that if you just, you know, smile in the mirror and, you know, reaffirm positive thinking has a tremendous positive impact on your life. Uh, what about diets? Like, do you think diets are useless? 
<laughs> I think diets are great for um, losing weight uh, only to gain it back. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've done that many times with diets. Yeah, I think it's you know, is a permanent change, right? And, mm-hmm. um, and it's just an awareness kind of thing. So yeah, I don't think diets really, uh, I, I can't even recommend a single one. <laughs> you look at the ketogenic diets, you look at protein based diets. So, yeah, I'm not, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna put my money and my, <laughs> my, my word behind any as a doctor. Um. Can you put your money, though, behind a book, like any favorite book, anything that any listener should definitely listen to that is into health or fitness? Yeah, I think, you know, talking about mindset, so it's on top of mind right now what we're talking about. I think Growth Mindset by mm-hmm. Carol Dweck is a um, something I go back to every year, at least. Why is that? The idea that our minds don't need to be fixed, that we can um, accept criticism as an opportunity mm-hmm. to learn makes for a happier life and it makes her a more successful life and And for personal growth and one that yeah and that people around you start to feed off of that growth too and it becomes contagious and you eventually get a group of people around you who are all trying to just be better in such a way in a supportive way do you know something that you would say most people get wrong about health or fitness in general I think it's the the mind body connection. Um, talking about that and kind mm-hmm. of staying on that theme is that uh, you can feel a whole lot better physically if you tend to your mental health. I think mental health is actually more important than physical health because mm-hmm. um, physical health follows mental health and not the other way around. Super true. Yeah, that was my last question. I really appreciate that you took the time. And yeah, I mean, is there like anything that you want to still share with our listeners? Yeah, sure. I would encourage people to go to rushact.org right now, which is where mm-hmm. there's a petition to sign uh, to be able to support the Rush Act and, and put your support in it. I yeah, we're going to put the link in our show notes. Oh, awesome. That'd be great. Yeah, I think it's a really important thing. The more signatures and the more support there are, there is, um, the better it is for, uh, and the quicker it'll get mm-hmm. passed, um, for sure. Um, and then if anyone is representative of their organization, their startup, whatever their organization is, and is the CEO or founder or, um, has some, can, can speak for their organization. Um, mm-hmm. there's also a, a support letter, uh, from organizations and getting those signatures would be amazing. That's well. great. Well, I don't want to take up more of your precious time. I really appreciate it. And thank you for coming on the show. All right. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks a lot, Tim. Yeah, thanks so much. And that's a wrap. I think it was really awesome to have Tim here at the show. Personally, I think it's great to hear another founding story of someone going down that risky road of entrepreneurship to try to really make an impact. And again, if you want to learn more about Call 9 and the great work that they're doing and also the books that Tim has mentioned on on this podcast, make sure to head to our show notes on 20minute.fitness. Feel free to reach out to us also on Twitter. Um, you can find us on at shape underscore scale to share your feedback with us or, or suggest, you know, whom we should talk to next, whom we should interview on the, on the show. And yeah, if you really enjoy our podcast, I would suggest that you leave us a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Doing so really helps other listeners to discover this podcast and really share the joy and the knowledge. Thanks again for listening and hope to meet you here next time. Bye.